Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed immigrants in baseball, learned about the global housing crisis, and heard more new music from Chicago. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for September 25, 2020. I-94 chatted with Gish Jen, author of this summer's breakout hit, The Resisters. Jen discussed her novel's allegory for these times, why baseball is so important to immigrant families, and how Naomi Osaka embodies one of her characters. I-94, Lumpin's Books and Literature Show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. We're thrilled to be able to have you on today to talk about writing and sports. And let's start there. I assume you must be a big sports fan as well, right? Actually, you know, embarrassingly, I'm really not. Oh, no um, kidding. I'm actually, but I, I've come from a family of immigrants, let me say. We're Chinese-American, you know, so my parents are from China. And, um, and you know, like many immigrants, uh, they, sports was their big portal into America. So I kind of know sports that way. Um, so that's to say that, um, you know, the first thing that my parents did, you know, the first way they kind of performed being American uh, was to go to a Yankees game. Sorry, it was the Yankees. Um, Boom. And, you know, and to, <laughs> and to root, you know, they learn all the rules. Of course, as, you know, as is clear in my book, I think, that, you know, they're learning a lot about democracy as they do this. But in any case, they're, you know, this is their first way of learning about America. And they do go on to become major, major, major uh, fans, especially my mother. Wow. Um, so, I mean, you know, so much so that, you know, um, you know, some years ago, my mother was very, very sick. Uh, she was in septic shock. You know, everybody thought that she was going to die. Um, and we all raced down to her. You know, she was, you know, she was comatose. She, we all raced, we're all racing down to her sick bed. And, and um, you know, she's, you know, my brother, my older brother is trying to get her to respond, right? And, and what does he say to her? He says to her, she is, he says, Mom, Mom, he says, the Yankees are in a slump. <laughs> the, the, the Red Sox are eating their lunch. <clears throat> and my, mo- my mother, who has been totally unresponsive, that, that bo- her eyes open. That's and amazing. the first thing she says is, that Aaron Boone should be fired. <laughs> the Yankees. And I, mean, I mean, that is really, you know, you know what sports meant, meant to me, it, 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 you know, meant to my family. I, and I will say that, you know, my mother, unfortunately, did die, um, you know, of COVID. Oh, and, I'm sorry. Um, and, you know, and I, yeah, I know. Uh, but, you know, we buried her with a Yankees cap, you know. Amazing. So, um, so I myself, so weirdly, I'm not the, and I will say also my brother was a major fan and also extremely athletic. So, um, you know, so it's the same thing where, you know, here we are. We don't really understand a lot about America. But, you know, my, my father brings my f- brother over to this boys' club. He's not really sure what this boys' club is about, you know. But it's really, um, it's really, a, um, it's really a, a, a sports club, right? So they, they rotate these kids in and out of these sports. And, and they discover that my brother can really throw, you know. And so my brother goes on to become, you know, the star pitcher, um, you know, in Yonkers, New York, which is a very serious baseball town, actually. <laughs> and when they take, you know, they take their, their baseball very seriously. Um, my brother goes on to be, you know, one of their best pitchers. At one point, he, you know, he, he is introduced to Tom Seaver, who has been a rookie. Um, he's introduced to Tom Seaver. They say, you know, we have this Chinese kid who can throw, um, which was true. Uh, Tom Seaver uh, taught him to throw a curveball. That's wow. a Hall of Fame and pitcher, so, for those of you who don't know. And who just passed away <laughs> as well. Oh yeah, he did. Yeah, just pass anyway, so he's, anyway, my I, I can I can go on and on. So my brother goes on to have this really classically kind of American childhood, where they're playing ball on the streets all the time, and you know there's many stories about you know he's throwing 
balls to the neighbor's windows. Um, at one point, he did throw this ball right through a, you know, this neighbor's window. The neighbor comes in to say, or he batted the ball right through the neighbor's window. The neighbor goes, comes over there to say, you know, your kid batted this ball right through my bedroom window. And my mother, my mother who really, you know, she doesn't have a very good hold of, on American society, really. Uh, but, she, but nonetheless, she finds it in herself to say, that can't be right. My, my son is a pitcher. He would have had a designated hitter. <laughs> 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 I mean, my mother really, truly, I mean, she barely knows who the president is. You know what I mean? She knows that, he, she knows that my brother would have had a designated hitter. Certainly and in the American know, League, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, but, I mean, my point is that, you know, it's so weirdly, I'm not really a sports fan, but I grew up with sports. You know, I mean, it was just part and parcel of my family. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I myself, you asked me, you know, do I know what the statistics are? No, I really don't, you know. But I know, I know baseball sort of very well, another way, kind of the outsider's way. And, and I think you could sort of see why, how that would give rise to a character like Gwen, my, you know, my pitcher, mm-hmm. um, who was very much, um, you know, an, out, an outsider. You know, she comes to a cheat. <laughs> it just so happens that she can really throw, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, about <laughs> Gwen, I, that brings up what a question I wanted to ask you. You know, I was yeah. just watching, of course, the U.S. Open, and I have thought of Gwen as being based on Naomi Osaka. Uh, and I could yep. be dead wrong, but I, I, that was how I thought of her. And I don't know whether Naomi Osaka was in your, in your head. You know, for those people that don't know, Osaka's won the U.S. Open twice. She is a, a, a black woman who grew up in Japan. Um, so she, she kind of, to me, was the uh, physical embodiment. I guess, of Gwen, uh, with her hair bobbing up and down and, and her very kind of uh, preternatural calmness on the tennis court, which she is known for. Um, you know, that is a, a great connection for you to make. Um, so um, I did invent Gwen, who is Blasian, meaning she's half black and half Asian, like Naomi Osaka, um, and like Tiger Woods. Um, I, you know, I, I invented Gwen before I knew about Naomi Osaka. But no sooner was my manuscript in, then there was this big profile of her in the New York Times magazine. I thought, oh, my God, there she is. It's Gwen, <laughs> you know. And um, I was just, you know, honestly, as, as a writer, you know, I had a problem. And my problem was that, um, was that uh, I needed to make it credible that this girl could throw, you know, 85 miles an hour if she needs to be able to do, right? And, you know, I was just thinking about that. And, you know, I was looking at Tiger Woods one day, and I just thought, you know, we just don't know what these Blasian athletes can do. You know, we, we don't know. There are not that many of them. And, you know, I have a feeling that, you know, yeah, you got to, if you get a Blasian girl out there, that she could really, you know, she, she might be able to really throw. You know what the thing and, that you know, made it that, credible that for was, me? That was, just, that was just my guess. That was just my guess. And then here is Naomi Osaka. <laughs> and Naomi Osaka, not, not only can she, you know, sure enough, can she, you know, does she have the preternatural calm? Which you know, which Gwen has, and the unbelievable physical you know um, ability that, that Gwen does. She also has the social conscience, you know. So I mean, you know, to me, I mean, it, it really is like, um, like you know, like I say, Gwen was a product of my imagination. But it is true that the overlap between her and, Nao- and Naomi Osaka is, is uncanny. I wanted to tell you something, Gish, and then ask you a question, yeah. but um. We're uh, in Bridgeport in Chicago. We're just south of Chinatown. We have a huge Chinese-American population here in this neighborhood. And it's funny you were telling that story because uh, I work at the library in this neighborhood. And my, one of my staff is Chinese-American. And her dad did the same thing with the White Sox that you were talking about with your mother with the Yankees to uh, learn the culture and to acclimate. And it's interesting 
uh, I've, my grandfather did it with football. He came from Poland. And it's, uh, I've never really thought of it you know, as something that immigrants might do. But the my other- mom did the same thing, actually. She is a Yankees fan as well when her family came over from Scotland. Your mom? My mom, yeah. yeah. Who, uh, she, she came over from, from Aberdeen, Scotland, and she, uh, she also is a Yankees fan, much to my shame. So you know, <laughs> we have that, that in common dish. But well, I, I, let me just sort of say that you know, I, you know, I live in Boston, and you know, I'm also <laughs> well, <there laughs> my, you, yeah. my family are rabid Yankees fans, and you know, it's kind of difficult, honestly. Um, <laughs> but um, but I think what you're saying is, I mean, this, so this this path that my parents were on, as you're all saying, is with a it's a very common path. In other words, it, you know, so this is the way that many, many, many immigrants, you know, kind of. They, they, you know, they acculturate, and also they, they learn a lot about what America is, right? I mean, you know, baseball is not any old sport, right? I mean, baseball is the American sport, and so many of our American ideals are kind of are embedded in baseball, you know? I mean, the whole idea that you should have a level playing field, that everybody should have a turn at bat, you know, kind of the balance between the individual and, and the collective is, is there... Um, you know, so they're watching, and, and, and you know, if you're, especially if you come from someplace like China, like, all of these ideas are extremely foreign. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, extremely, extremely so. Um, and the whole idea that you should have a game where the, the rules are set up in such a way as to enable the individual to realize something in themselves. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the, the whole idea that we have, you know, a, a rules... Rules that we all agree on, you know, it's that it's, an, it's a space that's governed by elective rules. Like, that is very weird if you come from China, you know? <laughs> and they're like, wait, what? You know? <laughs> it's actually so a little they, so weird. They, a little weird, yeah. here too. I was wondering, what did you do? You did some research, obviously, that Satchel Page is brought up. Um, I know there's been a little bit of resurgence. In, in literature with Satchel Page, some biographies coming out and things like that, but did you have to hunker down with some serious baseball history, or was this just yeah, things? Yeah, of course. Of course. I, you know, I, I, I read every single thing um, that was written about Satchel and that he wrote himself. Um, and, um, you know, and it, you know, Satchel's story, of course, is, you know, it was just so touching. I mean, it's just so amazing. Um, I think... You know, because well, what I love, too, is the way he, up, you know, overturns some ideas that we have. I mean, the whole idea that a reform school, for example, is just, ter- you know, a terrible, terrible place that you would never want to be in. Well, you know, in his case, without the reform school, who knew? Who knows whether he ever would have learned to pitch, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, right? I mean, that's where he learned to pitch. So, it's, you know, for him, it wasn't such a bad thing. Um, you know, so this, you know, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a lot there. Um, and, of course, I was, you know, I, and it's fascinating, too, you know, you know, the way that, you know, it, it, the, the baseball world that he was in, I mean, I don't mean to, look, it's a, this whole thing about there being Negro Leagues is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't mean to kind of paint this thing where, like, it really wasn't so bad. It was so bad. Um, but it is true. It's a very kind of creative arena, you know, where they would be pitching, you know, kind of pitches that, that, that you know, that the American leagues don't, don't you know, the mainstream um, leagues don't allow, you know. And the whole idea that he'd be doing this thing like the hesitation pitch, you know what I mean? And that wasn't the only pitch. You know, That's he had called all balking. Kinds of pitches. In the- yeah. <laughs> all, all kinds, yeah, exactly. But, but he threw all kinds of pitches that, you know what I mean, that are just not stand, you know, kind of standard yeah. repertoire, you know? The other and, part of the uh, research that got me was, thing. Yeah? was uh, Jackie Mitchell. That's the thing that made, yeah. honestly, Gwen credible to me. Was I'm a huge baseball fan. I've been playing since I could yeah. walk, basically. Who's Jackie Mitchell? I'm not- she, she's the woman. She's She's... A real historical person. She, in thirty one, I want to say she she pitched for the Chattanooga 
Chattanooga Lookouts, double-A right. team. She oh, struck out yeah, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig back-to-back. That's why she wears the hat. And yes. then three days later, she had her contract voided for being a woman. That That's yep. the story that made Gwen credible to me because I didn't know that, and it, it just kind of you know, exploded something in my head. Well, she struck out Babe Ruth, famously. That, yeah. that and then Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig yeah, yeah. also. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So. In an exhibition game. Right. I mean, there's some controversy about that, about whether, you know what I mean, whether this was really a publicity. Sure, but she's a real historical figure, but you know? She's a real, but she is a real figure, and she really did do that. And, um, and of course, there's, you know, there's other people, too, kind of in the background of our book, and all the people like Mamie Peanut Johnson. You know, I mean, some of these, some of these women's pictures are just amazing, you know. Because I've always had a, um, a soft spot for Mamie Peanut Johnson because, you know, she's like a, yeah. they, they say she was 105 pounds, like, dripping wet in her uniform. <laughs> and yeah. I myself, you, 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 well, I'm not in your studio, but I myself am five feet tall. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I weigh a little more than that now, but not a lot more. And, it's, you know, and I could just see her, this tiny thing on the mound, you know, this tiny African-American woman on the mound, you know. And, you know, she can really throw. Chuck Mertz shared with geographer Deborah Potts about her new book, Broken Cities, Inside the Global Housing Crisis. Potts discussed how systematic disinvestment in cities has led to sprawling megalopolises and how failing infrastructure is poisoning people worldwide and why cities remain so expensive. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Here to help us understand the housing crisis, geography scholar Dr. Deborah Potts is author of Broken Cities, Inside the Global Housing Crisis. Welcome to This is Hell, Dr. Potts. Hi, Chuck. Thank you. Uh, how should I address you? Deborah, Dr. Potts, what would you like? Uh, I'm usually called Debbie. All right, I'll go with that. That sounds much better. Yeah. Debbie uh, is uh, her previous books include her 2006 work, African Urban Economies, Viability, Vitality, or Vitiation, and the 2010 title, Circular Migration in Zimbabwe and Contemporary Sub-Saharan Africa. She was recently retired from the Geography Department of King's College London, before which she lectured at the School of Oriental and Asian or in African Studies. She is now an emeritus reader in human geography and a member of the Urban Features and Contested Development Research Domains at King's College. How would you describe the current housing crisis that we face. What is the current housing crisis? In case there are people listening right now who are unaware for whatever reason that there is a housing crisis. 
Well, I think there are two um, aspects to this. One of them is the sort of immediate material issue, I think, that uh, I believe that we have, we are, we are in a crisis. Uh, one can say that housing, the lack of affordable housing for low income groups is a chronic condition of capitalism. I think that's right. And in fact, that's a central part of my, uh, my, my thesis in this book. But the book also tries to <clears throat> explain why I feel that from the end of the last century and up until this current term, and unfortunately I believe also into the future, this has shifted further into an increasing crisis. So that if you like, the chronic condition has become increasingly critical and it's getting worse and worse. Um, so that's the sort of material thing. And I try to explain in this book why I think that has happened. And there are a whole series of things which are behind that. The key one being that uh, from 1980, as we all know from the 1980s, the, uh, the system of global capitalism shifted from uh, what one might think of as the post-war social contract, the post-Second World War social contract, which was extremely influential in Europe in mitigating all sorts of the worst aspects of capitalism for the poor, if you like, in a very crude sense. And those things have started to be unpicked and then have been very rapidly unpicked, particularly after the financial crash of 2008. But the other thing about the housing crisis that I argue in this book, which you touched upon in your introduction there, is this concept uh, that I use in this book called the housing dilemma. And the housing dilemma uh, it is the idea that uh, that it is actually impossible for capitalism to address the problem of housing affordability uh, because embedded in the nature of profit-seeking uh, capitalist activity in property sectors are a set of conditions that make it impossible to make profit out of low-income people. Uh, so that you are trying to square a circle there. If you rely on them supplying that housing, that is never, ever going to work. And right throughout the world, and it doesn't matter whether you're in Harare in Zimbabwe or whether you're in Mumbai or whether you're in Rio de Janeiro or whether you're in Chicago or whether you're in London, this repeats itself over and over and over again. So that's uh, the, the sort of two answers to that, the actual increasing nature of the crisis. It really is a crisis now. It's, it's, it's gone beyond the chronic condition, if you like. You write that if uh, the logic goes when it comes to uh, responding to the housing crisis with building more low-income housing, you write that the logic is that if enough houses were built, market prices would fall into line with demand. The magic of the market of the invisible hand would provide the solution. That approach looks at the housing crisis, which is manifest across the urban world and most particularly in the largest cities where economic opportunities are apparently greatest from the wrong end of the telescope. The real problem is demand. So it's not a, a shortage of supply. It's an abundance of demand that is at the heart of any global housing crisis. How do we understand 
the housing crisis differently when we view it as too much demand and not too little supply? Because the interdependence of supply and demand can lead to the two being conflated and possibly difficult to separate and think of independently from one another. So how do we view whatever housing crisis is being experienced as a problem with demand and not a problem with supply? How do we view that differently when we see it as a problem with a demand and not a problem with supply? The, the issue here is that housing markets are segmented, all right? So people are often familiar with the idea of labor markets being segmented and that, for example, you have uh, situations where there are whole lots of people who can be, uh, who can be high ends of the labor, uh, labor market. Um, and increasing the number of people in that end of the market is never going to satisfy demands for nursing assistance or something at the other end of the market. And this is the situation also with housing. The issue is that um, the supply of most types of housing makes no difference to the housing problems faced by poorer groups, as they simply cannot afford most types of housing. Um, and if one looks at demand, one has to look at the labour market. My view is that if you look at the labour market in any society, you can find uh, huge numbers of jobs, uh, m hundreds of millions of jobs across the globe, if you like, in, in urban situations, where if people set aside uh, money that they can just about afford to do to, to pay for their housing, which is always the largest element of the budget, and leave enough for them to eat and clothe themselves and send their children to school and various things like that, that most of the types of housing that is legal and decent, and these are crucial points, uh, is simply too expensive for them to afford. They just can't afford it. And that is the problem. So if you look at it from the point of view of monetary demand, and that's what the laws of supply and demand are about, they're about monetary demand. If you look at it in terms of monetary demand, they simply do not command sufficient monetary demand to house themselves in a legal, decent way through the market processes. So is there not a housing demand as much as there is a demand for money? Is the problem not a shortage of supply of housing, but a shortage of supply of money for the poor? And if that is the case, what would explain to you why housing advocates, people who do want to help the poor, would be pushing for just a larger supply of low-income housing instead of higher wages for the poor? Of course, it could be tackled from both ends. I mean, there are people who argue that the thing to do is to increase everybody's wages, you know, have a minimum wage, which is sufficiently high for people to command enough monetary demand to enter the, uh, the housing market. That would work, uh, but I have to say that I think it's fantastically unlikely uh, particularly since the scope of this book is global. I'm looking at societies uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where people aren't even beginning to touch the side of the possibility of earning enough money. Uh, you'd have to increase their incomes perhaps by 30 or 40 fold. This isn't going to happen. 
right? You are right, however, in terms of saying that, you know, another way of answering this would be to greatly increase the supply of housing that is suitable for low-income people. However, that housing always involves a significant subsidy from the state, or it can involve, actually, let's, let's put this more broadly, non-market solutions. It doesn't always have to be straightforwardly from the state. Collective ways of approaching issues to do with property and so on can also help. Uh, but it is that question of intervention by the state to ameliorate this situation um, and provide housing that is significantly below the market rate, um, that the cost of it is significantly below the market rate, that will solve the problem. If you can provide that sort of housing, you will, at, at, at scale, you will solve the problem. In Britain, for example, which had the largest council housing, we call it council housing here, um, projects in the whole world uh, in the post-war situation and built millions of council houses. Um, by the end of the 1970s, we had actually solved the housing dilemma. We had solved the housing problem. There was no shortage of housing. People could move between different parts of the country who were in low-income jobs. They could gain access to housing, and it was long-term housing. They would, they would not be evicted or moved. They could live their whole lives there, and their children could move into the housing as well and stay in the housing. We had solved the problem. However, as you know, what happened at the, 19, at the end of the 1970s was that post-war social contract started to collapse, and Margaret Thatcher came to power in, uh, in the 1980s, and that was and it all began to come undone. So all that council housing began to be picked away at and to disappear and to be sold off and to be privatised. And as it has become privatised, it has been taken out of the pool so that the pool has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So we have massive amounts of supply, an oversupply of expensive housing um, and sort of middle type of housing as well, and a shrinking and reducing supply of affordable housing for those on low incomes. What's this? I'm going to teach you how the recorder works, Kyle. No, it looks like I got the aptitude for such technologically advanced learning. Jamie, want another one? Yeah, Eric, thanks. Kyle? Nah, I'm good. You don't look good. His producer quit on him. No, I mean, he looks like he's had a few. But he hasn't ordered anything from me today. No, no, I ain't done what you think I done. What are you talking about? Sometimes he BYOBs. You got anything to hand over? I've been coming here since before the Mashuski tribe called this place their own, mind you. Ah, whatever, Kyle. Listen, Kyle, I know you miss John, but you need to focus on size matters. Yeah, more like nothing matters. Stop it. I know someone who would love to... Here you to... go, Jamie. Thanks, Eric. Listen, I, I know it. someone I who would love to help out, but you need to be a little more Hold independent. On. Before you throw out the ultimatum... Gotta do something while old banana brain ain't looking yeah. What? Did you just take a swig out of a medicine bottle? Yeah, don't say nothing to nobody. I got my lumpin' bubbles in here. Lumpin' bubbles? Yeah, lump. Are you not familiar with the canon? Lumpin' bubbles, my very own concoction has heard on Size Matters Episode 3. Go back and listen to it. It smells like dish soap. Yeah. That mostly is. 
It doubles as bubble fluid for children and a discreet adult drink. You are drunk, aren't you? Oh, good question, Jamie. He's actually entered an altered state of emotional consciousness. And I told him if he ever brings a hooch in here again, I would ban him for life. Who's life? You ain't seen nothing. I've been standing right over this the whole time. Yeah, way to be a creep. Pal doesn't want to learn how to use the portable. He's right, I don't. You're upset about John, aren't you? Yeah, I was. Dude, move on, man. Get out there and learn how this stupid little recorder works and record stuff. I don't know. I do. I'm going to do the dumbest thing since opening my own radio station. I'm going to let you pick the next producer for Size Matters. Whoa, 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 Ed, no, that's, that's a little too much control here. No, it isn't. It's Kyle's turn to prove himself. That's right, I can do it. I... <laughs> he just burped up a bubble, look. Sorry, I just... Oh, no, over. don't pop the bubble. Code 74. Oh, code 74, this is not a drill, oh, people. So no sorry. one, pop Ed, I'm so the sorry. bubble. Continue oh. to the exit. Just please Turn exit the bar. Take Continue care of the exit. Do not pop the... I got it. Oh, my God. I that stuff. My nostrils are burning. Just move. I think Get I'm going to throw way. up. Get out of my way. This week on The Trump Diaries, a fresh hell as Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, Mitch McConnell pledges to immediately fill her seat after stealing one from Obama, Trump says he will not accept the election results, Trump says blue states should be taken out of virus counts, and Trump calls teaching American students about racism, child abuse. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1338, September 18th. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died at age 87 late Friday night. In a statement from the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Roberts said, quote, Our nation has lost a juris of historic stature. Today we mourn, but with confidence that future generations will remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg as we knew her, a tireless and resolute champion of justice. Ginsburg dictated the following statement days before her death, quote, My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Her passing immediately set up a bitter, bare-knuckle fight in Washington over confirming the next member of the Supreme Court. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who blocked President Obama's attempt to fill a vacant seat in the final year of his presidency, said he would move quickly. According to a former Trump White House official, McConnell, who has called the obstruction of Merrick Garland, quote, the most important decision I've made in my political career, told donors earlier this year, quote, that when RBG meets her reward, even if it's October, we're getting our judge. He's saying it's our October surprise. Trump urged senators to confirm without delay and said he will select a conservative woman for the post. Several Republican senators have already expressed misgivings given McConnell's past actions. At least two have gone on record as saying the post should not be filled until after the election. However, Republicans appear to have the votes in the Senate. Furious Democrats also called on McConnell to delay the confirmation with Joe Biden saying he would appoint a black woman to the court in what would be a first. Lindsey Graham immediately supported Trump's move. Worth noting is that Graham said in 2016, when the GOP stonewalled Obama's pick, quote, I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. Trump said in a press conference that the United States coronavirus death toll is very low if you take the blue states out. If you take the blue states out, we're at a level that I don't think anybody in the world would be at. We're really at a very low level, but some of the states, they were blue states and blue state management. By the way, we'd recommend they open up their states. It's hurting far more people than the disease itself. 
In fact, the states with the biggest populations in the United States, which are New York, Florida, California, and Texas, have the most cases, and red states such as Louisiana, Mississippi, Arizona, and Michigan are in the top 10. A federal judge blocked the U.S. Postal Service operational changes that slowed mail delivery, saying both Trump and Postmaster General Louis DeJoy are, quote, involved in a politically motivated attack on the efficiency of the Postal Service. The changes that DeJoy brought into play have slowed mail in major urban centers by close to 10% and in key swing states by close to 20%. Trump responded by claiming that results, quote, may never be accurately determined because big unsolicited ballot states automatically send ballots to registered voters. This is false. Attorney General William Barr called his own Justice Department staff, quote, preschoolers and headhunters at an event hosted by Hildale College. Barr insisted he has the ultimate authority to intervene in investigations and to overrule career lawyers as he sees fit. Quote, what exactly am I interfering with? Under the law, all prosecutorial power is invested in the Attorney General. At the same event, Barr claimed that coronavirus-related lockdowns were, quote, the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in history other than slavery. Barr went on to accuse governors of, quote, treating free citizens as babies by using their executive powers to prevent people from going back to work. He suggested that the federal response to the pandemic should be guided by politicians and elected officials rather than, quote, by the person in the white coat. And Trump said the coronavirus might be a good thing because it means he no longer has to shake hands with disgusting people. A former top advisor to Mike Pence, Olivia Troy, said Trump told her directly, I don't like shaking hands with people. I don't have to shake hands now with these disgusting people. Day 1339, September 19th. Trump said he will ban WeChat and TikTok from U.S. app stores starting at midnight Sunday. Americans will be blocked from downloading the Chinese-owned apps due to his concerns they pose a threat to national security. The order bars Apple's App Store, Alphabet's Google Play, and others from offering the apps on any platform that can be reached from within the United States. In classless fashion, Trump claimed that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish that her replacement on the Supreme Court be chosen by the next president was concocted by a political rival. Over objections from hosts on Fox News, Trump claimed, quote, It came out of the wind. It sounds so beautiful. But that sounds like a Schumer deal or maybe Pelosi or Shifty Schiff. In fact, it was Ginsburg's deathbed wish told to her own granddaughter. Julian Assange was offered a presidential pardon in return for information that would resolve, quote, the ongoing speculation about Russian involvement in the hacking of Democratic National Committee emails. Representative Dana Rohrbacher and Trump associate Charles Johnson told Assange they could help grant him a presidential pardon in exchange for information that could, quote, benefit Trump politically. Rohrbacher and Johnson said Trump knew about the meeting and approved offering Assange what they described as a win-win proposal. Assange is on trial for hacking and cyber crimes and to be extradited to the United States. And Trump blamed nationwide protests against police brutality on public schools teaching students about the impact of slavery and racism. Calling it toxic propaganda and left-wing indoctrination, Trump said he claimed radical toxic child abuse that threatens to impose a new segregation is being taught. Trump then announced he would create a 1776 commission to promote a pro-American curriculum that celebrates the truth about the miracle of American history. Trump also railed against the Pulitzer Prize winning public school curriculum developed by the New York Times called the 1619 Project that aims to tell American history from when the first slave ship arrived on American shores. Day 1340, September 20th. FBI Director Christopher Wray warned that Russia continues to try to influence our elections and is seeking primarily to denigrate Biden's campaign. 
Ray said Russia has not successfully hacked any election systems. Their activity has been limited to social media misinformation and influence operations. Trump responded by tweeting, Christopher, all this about Russia, 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 and nothing about China, which is way more dangerous. The pandemic continues to keep a grip on our nation as we pass 200,000 fatalities. That is more than the combined number of Americans killed in the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, the war in Afghanistan, and the Persian Gulf War. The number of U.S. deaths is equivalent to a 9-11 attack every day for 67 straight days. More than half of U.S. states are reporting a rise in coronavirus cases, with 27 states and Puerto Rico all reporting test positivity rates above 5%. Trump responded to that marker by claiming the coronavirus affects virtually nobody. In fact, the U.S. death toll is now expected to double by 400,000 by the end of the year as schools and colleges reopen and cold weather sets in. Trump also bragged he's done an amazing, incredible job. The only thing we've done a bad job is in public relations because we haven't been able to convince people, which is basically the fake news, what a great job we've done. In fact, the U.S. has the highest death toll of any country in the world, accounting for 21% of the global fatalities, and of course, we represent only 4% of the world's population. Trump added, quote, by the way, open your schools. Meanwhile, political appointees tried to silence a top official at the CDC after she warned, quote, we have way too much virus across the country. Ann Skuchat, the CDC principal deputy director, appealed to Americans to wear masks, saying she hoped the country could, quote, take it seriously and slow the transmission. The next day, Michael Caputo, the Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs, reprimanded her, arguing her comments contradicted Trump administration officials. Quote, importantly, having the virus spread among the young and healthy is one of the methods to drive herd immunity. She is duplicitous. An insider account of the Mueller investigation of Trump claims the special counsel failed to do everything he could to determine what happened in the 2016 election. The account says their team failed to subpoena Trump and scrutinize his finances out of fear he would fire them. Those claims made by key deputy Andrew Weissman also called Trump lawless. He's scathing on Attorney General William Barr. He describes him as an enabler who has betrayed his country. And a woman suspected of sending a letter containing ricin to the White House and several federal prisons has been arrested. The woman, a Canadian citizen, was taken into custody as she was trying to enter the U.S. with a gun and a knife in New York. She claimed she mailed the letter because Trump is a threat to all Americans. Day 1341, September 21st. The Department of Justice has designated three American cities as anarchist jurisdictions, claiming elected officials have allowed property destruction and violence during protests over racism and police brutality. In a press release, the DOJ singled out New York, Portland, and Seattle, claiming, quote, they have permitted violence and the destruction of property to persist and refuse to undertake reasonable measures to counteract these criminal activities. Attorney General William Barr added, quote, We cannot allow federal tax dollars to be wasted when the safety of the citizenry hangs in the balance. Andrew Wheeler of the EPA also threatened to move his offices out of New York. In response, Governor Andrew Cuomo said, quote, Wheeler should concentrate on subverting more environmental laws. Medicare will not cover the cost of administering a coronavirus vaccine approved for emergency use. While lawmakers passed a CARES Act in March to ensure free coronavirus vaccine coverage, Medicare by statute doesn't cover costs for any drug approved under emergency use. Also, a public affairs official at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases is to retire after revelations he was an anonymous author of blog posts disparaging his boss, Dr. Anthony Fauci. William Cruz derided also his own colleagues on the right-wing blog Red State, saying, quote, government officials responsible for the pandemic response should be executed, and calling Fauci a mask Nazi, the attention-grubbing and media-whoring doctor. 
Rudy Giuliani's associate, Lev Parnas, has been indicted again on new federal fraud charges. Parnas, who ran the deliciously named Fraud Guarantee, was a major source of Russian disinformation claiming that Biden's son, Hunter, was involved in shady dealings in Ukraine. This was false. Prosecutors say Parnas persuaded an array of investors to pump more than $2 million into Fraud Guarantee, which was intended to offer an insurance-like product to protect consumers. Fraud Guarantee never got off the ground. The Treasury Department has opened an investigation into allegations of rampant racism at the U.S. Mint. A group of black employees at the Mint asked the Treasury Secretary to intervene in June. And a group of Trump supporters illegally disrupted early voting in Virginia. The group formed a line around a polling station that forced voters to walk around while chanting four more years and waving Trump flags. In Virginia, any kind of political advocacy is prohibited within 40 feet of an entrance to a polling place. Day 1342, September 22nd, Manhattan's district attorney said he is now investigating Trump for tax fraud and falsifying records. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office is seeking eight years of Trump's tax returns and related records and is sued for them. It is the first time Cyrus Vance's office has suggested that tax fraud is among the possible area of investigation. Also, into an accelerating case into tax fraud, Trump's son Eric was ordered to answer questions under oath before the election by October 7th. Eric Trump's lawyers had tried to delay his deposition until after the election, claiming, quote, it could be used for political purposes. The judge ruled that a delay was unnecessary and that his argument was unpersuasive. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos is under investigation by the FBI for violating the Hatch Act after she slammed Joe Biden in a Fox News interview and her agency promoted it on official feeds. The head of investigative watchdog blog Checks and Balances said in an interview that Hatch Act attorney Eric Johnson told him he had been assigned to investigate the matter. Senator Mitt Romney says he will support moving forward with Trump's Supreme Court nominee. That announcement virtually guarantees Trump nominee to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg will be confirmed likely before Election Day. Trump says he will announce his nominee on Saturday following ceremonies honoring Ginsburg, who is lying in repose at the Supreme Court and in state at the U.S. Capitol. Ginsburg is the first woman to be so honored. And as pandemic cases jumped by 15%, the CDC said that Halloween trick-or-treating, Thanksgiving parades, and Black Friday shopping should all be canceled. Trump told crowds at a rally that Antifa protesters were buying bumblebee tuna to throw cans at police. Calling it the perfect size and weight, Trump alleged they just whip it at police, you look at Chicago, whereupon he mimed police ducking. The bizarre aggression was rated obviously untrue by fact-checkers who could find no evidence any cans of tuna have been involved in civil unrest. Day 1343, September 23rd. The House has approved a stopgap spending bill after congressional leaders and the Trump administration reached a deal to avert a government shutdown next week and extend funding through December 11th. That deal included tens of billions of dollars in additional relief for struggling farmers and for nutritional assistance. The House cleared the threshold needed to approve the measure, 359 to 57. The Senate must still pass the bill. Trump has nominated a one-time aide to one of his top congressional allies to serve as the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community. A former aide to Devin Nunes will succeed a former official who played a role in revealing the Ukraine whistleblower complaint that prompted impeachment proceedings. Trump later fired him. Alan Robert Sousa must be confirmed by the Senate. Trump's EPA rejected scientific evidence linking the pesticide chlorpyrifos to serious health problems, directly contradicting federal scientists' conclusions five years ago that it can stunt brain development in children. 
The assessment of the pesticide, which is widely used on soybeans, almonds, grapes, and other crops, is a new victory for chemical makers in the agricultural industry. It is also the latest in a long list of Trump regulatory rollbacks. Trump said that the police shooting of MSNBC anchor and correspondent Ali Velshi while covering a protest was a beautiful thing. It's called law and order. Velshi was shot in the knee with a rubber bullet. Trump said, quote, they grabbed one guy. I'm a reporter. I'm a reporter. Get out of here. They threw him aside like he was a little bag of popcorn, Trump said to laugh from the crowd. Honestly, when you watch the crap that we've all had to take for so long, when you see that, it's actually it's actually a beautiful sight. An election year investigation by Senate Republicans into corruption allegations against Joe Biden and his son Hunter involving a company in Ukraine found no evidence of wrongdoing. The rehashing of these false talking points closed an inquiry its leaders had hoped would tarnish the Democratic presidential nominee. The CIA said explicitly that Vladimir Putin is aware of and probably directing Russia's influence operations aimed at interfering in the 2020 election by denigrating Joe Biden. The CIA also analyzed the activities of Andrei Derkash, a Ukrainian lawmaker who provided information to Rudy Giuliani, including efforts to disseminate disparaging information about Biden through lobbyists, Congress, the media, and others. Giuliani said he, quote, interviewed Derkash three times. Day 1344, September 24th. Trump's campaign is reportedly in discussion with state and national Republican officials to, quote, bypass election results and appoint loyal electors in battleground states where Republicans hold a legislative majority. That move would amount to a coup designed to keep Joe Biden from winning the election. Trump's state and national legal teams are laying the groundwork for post-election maneuvers to circumvent the results of the votes in battleground states. Ambiguities in the Constitution make it possible to extend the dispute all the way to Inauguration Day. Worth noting is that the 2020 presidential election will now be the first in 40 years to take place without a federal judge requiring the Republican National Committee to seek approval in advance for any so-called ballot security operations at the polls. The RNC has operated for the last 40 years under a consent decree. Trump said he would not commit to a peaceful transfer of power after the election. Trump replied, we're going to have to see what happens, you know that. I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots. The ballots are a disaster. A reporter replied, I understand that, but people are rioting. Do you commit to make sure that there's a peaceful transfer of power? Quote, get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very peaceful, there won't be a transfer, frankly, there will be a continuation. The ballots are out of control. You know it and you frankly knows it better than anyone else. The Democrats know it better than anyone else. Trump said he may or may not approve new Food and Drug Administration guidelines that would toughen the process for approving a vaccine, suggesting, quote, that plan sounds like a political move. The comments came after a tense exchange in the Senate when Rand Paul claimed that Dr. Anthony Fauci had favored an economic lockdown falsely and suggested without evidence the spread of the virus had slowed in New York State because, quote, they have enough immunity to actually stop it. Fauci shot back that the senator was wrong. Quote, this happens with Senator Paul all the time. About 22% of New Yorkers are immune to the virus, and if you believe 22% is herd immunity, I believe you're alone in that. A Kentucky grand jury indicted a single former police officer for shooting at the neighboring apartments but did not charge any police officers for their role in the death of Breonna Taylor. Former police officer Brett Hankinson was charged with three counts of wanton endangerment, and protesters gathered in downtown Louisville after he was required to post a bond of just $15,000. The case was hampered by the fact that Taylor's boyfriend fired a warning shot thinking the apartment was being burgled. That shot hit a police officer. They were then authorized to use deadly force. 
in the aftermath, protests grew again across America. Protests in Seattle and Portland were effectively declared riots after demonstrators set fire and threw explosives at the police. In Louisville, two policemen were shot. Chicago reacted to that verdict by mobilizing hundreds of city vehicles and the National Guard in the anticipation of national protests and civil unrest. Governor Jamie Pritzker called the findings, quote, a gross miscarriage of justice. Meanwhile, Trump responded to that verdict by praising Kentucky's Attorney General Daniel Cameron. He's doing a fantastic job. I think he's a star. Trump said nothing else about the case and walked away claiming he had to take an emergency phone call when pressed on the verdict by reporters. Cindy McCain said she is endorsing the Democratic candidate for president despite being a lifelong Republican married to the late Republican Senator John McCain, saying tartly, Joe Biden is the better man. McCain also said that Trump calling fallen American soldiers losers and suckers was pretty much the last straw. Trump responded by tweeting, quote, I hardly know Cindy McCain other than having put her on a committee at her husband's request. Joe Biden was McCain's lapdog. So many bad decisions. Endless wars in the VA, which I brought from a horror show to high approval. Never a fan of John. Cindy can have Sleepy Joe. When told of Trump's tweet, Cindy McCain said on TV, huh, I have no comment. Leaked chats showed Portland-area pro-Trump activists planned and trained for violence and suggested political assassinations in that city. The Patriots' coalition grew more extreme as they discussed armed confrontations with left-wing Portland activists and started to distribute online disinformation about the protests in cities and the Pacific wildfires. Trump aides are now bracing for the possibility of a humiliating debate loss to Biden. White House allies, donors, and some of Trump's closest advisors worry that a recent frenzied push by his lieutenants to portray Biden as a seasoned debater is too late, also too disingenuous. Trump has set a trap for himself by incessantly attacking Biden's age and mental acumen. He has also claimed Biden is on drugs. 62% of Americans want the winner of the November presidential election to name a successor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. Men and women are split evenly down the middle in their support of Trump and Biden. Men overwhelmingly support Trump. Women are all in for Biden. 90% of Americans say lawmakers need to pass a new coronavirus stimulus package to mitigate the fallout from the pandemic before confirming a Supreme Court judge. And Biden continues to lead handily in national polling and in state-by-state -state polls, including in many red states. These are the Trump Diaries. The Laughing Hearts, featuring our own Ari Shellis, recorded a live set at CoPro this week. This is Wabash, and it was engineered and mastered by Ari. When the day is long, speaks the most simple song. When you're feeling blue, only means what I mean to you. Sad song about a broken way, and the leaves they change. Long enough goes the good old days. Long close my eyes, wake up in Chicago. Chicago. Sleep 
stops for a moment and it checks you out. Hello in the sky, don't speak much, but it speaks as my oh. With the stars alive, I look to you in your dark eyes. It's the middle of the specific uh, uh, press conference turned out to be about was using this as a, as a demonstration of this spider-like covert and seamless graft that, uh, that when implanted in a body, is able to read the chemistry, the, the level of, auto, uh, of automatic responses, and the nervous system and thermophysical uh, 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 like systems that are going on. Um, and able to map the structures of feelings and experiences into code. Now, now um, uh, just to clarify, when you say graft, what, is that, what does that mean exactly? Well, it's a, it's a small stick-like implant that is perfectly, perfectly uh, installed into the, the body um, that it, almost as an extension of said body. Okay, okay. It sort of tricks the different... Uh, the different parts of your body into thinking that it that it is in itself a a meaty organ, a, a part of the nervous or the limbic system that it should be interacting with, and that's how it gets most of its information. Interesting. So, Very interesting. what um sp- uh, one of the biggest things that they released was a uh, was a software called uh, Court X. Court X is a is an open um, emotion mapping software that I mean realistically one of the big asks for a Prairie City Dynamics here was to encourage people to investigate both their emotions and use Court X to help develop the open source uh, the open source understanding of how emotions can be converted into uh, actual actionable data. Well, this all sounds quite laudable so far. Right. Um, it, it's part of this whole lo- the lo- uh, globalization uh, movement. I believe I've heard about that, yeah. yes. Um, so the promises that were made with this, with with this, with this huge reveal was that uh, these automatic processes uh, could, in fact, uh, understand and uh, develop fear, uh, like understand and collect uh, the information related to fear, um, specifically the fight or flight response, fight mm-hmm. or flight enhancements, possibly, um, could help directing and supporting grief and trauma. Um, it, so this data, this uh, this the software might even be able to 
allow for deeper connections between people and AI or perhaps people and people. Uh, um, perhaps even a, a therapist on a chip. Right, a therapist on a chip, or in situations of danger or excitement, um, they could they there there could be manifest certain technology, uh, external technology, which would create something like a force field on the outside, or sort of like a fight or flight. They could you know develop wings, or brass knuckles, whatever you may need, depending on this this automatic emotional response to stimuli. Broadcast every Saturday eight to nine p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.